Welcome everyone to another episode of Tales of the LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. I'm thrilled to have you be here today for another excellent interview. Before we go and talk to Kaylee McIntosh, I do want to thank all of you who have subscribed to us here on YouTube, as well as have left us some fantastic reviews this has helped us greatly when it comes to the algorithms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. It makes sure that our LGBTQ plus voice gets out there. And that for that, I'm greatly appreciative. We will be getting back to a regular schedule here for Tales of the LGBTQ plus soon. Uh, the past month or so with my contract, I've been extremely busy and I'm thrilled that the few podcast uh, interviews that I've been able to do the past month, they've been great. And they've been able to schedule their time for the wee bit period where I'm able to. So I'm appreciative, but I'm also very well aware that that puts you into this. Is it showing up? Is it not? I wanna listen to the next episode. Have no fear, it is happening. Soon we'll be back to a regular podcast. As always, I wish to acknowledge that I learn and work on Treaty 6 and Métis ancestral lands, the traditional gathering place for many Indigenous people. This is where we will strive to honor and transform our relationship with one another. This is done on a daily basis, not necessarily just on a Truth and Reconciliation Day, but on every single day of the year. Be sure that you are listening, understanding, and if it's what you hear is in conflict with what you believe to have known to be true before, good. Sit in that for a while. Try to understand. We move forward together truth and reconciliation can take place, but we must always listen. That's your homework assignment for sure. Today on Tales of the LGBTQ+, I'm gonna to talk to Kaylee McIntosh. I got to know Kaylee, or Kay, through Pride Corner on White. There were a few times when they were down there dancing, uh, showing support, but they also came to help me during a certain situation that took place a few weeks ago. And I'm greatly appreciative of that. Now, it was a weird incident. We had a person go into a garbage can, not by our doing, it was their choice. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But Kaylee's got a fantastic background, fantastic in that they have a story to share, a story discussing addiction, being unhoused, finding strength and becoming a community support worker uh, for those people that they identified with as being part of. And so I'm really interested to learning more about their background, what they're doing today and what they plan to do for the many tomorrows that are to come. So today on Tales of the LGBTQ+, my guest is Kaylee McIntosh. Kaylee, how are you doing today? 
I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. We were talking a little bit before coming on air about you sharing your story and a little bit of nervousness, you know, because you're sharing your story for a first time with a podcast like this. And so I'm greatly appreciative and thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, understanding that your story needs to be heard because there's another Kaylee out there who's going to listen and identify and have that support. So Kay, on the screen, if people are watching on YouTube, they see your name, Kaylee, as well as the pronouns they, them. For you, why are your pronouns so important? Yeah, thank you for asking. I appreciate that question. Um, my pronouns are extremely important to me because I myself um, identify as non-binary. <clears throat> that word has plenty of different meanings to different people, but I struggled with my identity for a very long time. And so when I use my pronouns um, and other people use my pronouns, it's a sign of respect, um, respect for who I am and respect for the person I want to be. Hmm. You know, five years ago, I never understood what the word non-binary meant. And I could count on my hand the number of times I heard the reference to the words. And now today, I hear it a lot, uh, especially with the work through Pride Corner on White. So when did you begin to understand that there was binary non-binary and not only was this a thing but this was you mm -hmm. yeah i you know i never really fit into what society standards was of a woman um <clears throat> i was born um a female and i transitioned um into being non-binary probably when i was about 17 and, you know, I know that the word non-binary and the meaning of non-binary is very different for everybody. Um, so I can only re really speak on to what uh, my experience was with um, being a non-binary person growing up. Um, it's, it's, you know, I've always felt the same about myself. I've always just been Kaylee um, or Kay. And when I finally heard <clears throat> my friend tell me about their story of being non-binary, I listened to them and I was like, that sounds oddly familiar, you know, <laughs> because I didn't really understand either until I had listened to somebody else explain their experience with it. And then I was like, yeah, that's a, uh, that was kind of like the missing puzzle piece if you, if you would call it, but yeah. So you use the word transition and we've had guests on this podcast who are transgender, uh, who have transitioned to be their authentic self. And so for people to understand who are listening, who may not know binary, non-binary, when you say transition, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so for my transition, it was more um, breaking the cycle that I was 
put into um, in a in a binary role. Um, so I know that um, others go through physical changes, mental changes, personality changes, um, like a whole bunch of different things. And for me, it was coming to accept that I was not what I was labeled and transitioning into being my true authentic self, like you had said before. And not necessarily transitioning into a new way of life, but a new pattern of thinking um, to also share that with, with other people as well, right? Um, I find that we, we live in a society that is very um, gender-based. And so my transition was really about me breaking those rules to become the person that I was comfortable with. And the struggles of that were, were pretty intense, but I, you know, I still struggle with it today. It's not something that just gets better overnight, right? And um, yeah, my transition was just truly just transitioning into being who I am, I guess, and kind of taking off those walls that I, that I had had up before, so. Hmm. So the, the walls that you're making mention of, you know, we all have these walls that we punch through and as we become part of our authentic self and become part of this larger chosen family, this rainbow community that we're part of. So let's talk about those walls that were built up with you. Um, were you born and raised in Alberta or did you come to Alberta at a later age? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was born and raised in Alberta on Treaty 6 land. Um, I was originally born in a small town, Alberta. Um, if anybody has ever lived in a small town, they, they probably know that there are quite a few barriers with being um, a queer youth who was temporarily unhoused in an addiction. Um, and not really having people open-minded to to me being um, a pansexual, non-binary person. So it was, you know, those those walls were put there and I didn't even really put them there, you know? So, yeah. So you've thrown in another word as well. And as we're doing the education bit here as well, because we do have um, many listeners who are from outside the rainbow community who are allies. So the word pansexual, mm -hmm. we, we have to do that explanation as well. So pansexual non-binary. Yes, yes. Um, pansexual for me uh, means that I don't I'm not necessarily attracted to somebody based off of their gender sexuality. Um, I just love people. It's, it's really just as easy as that. I, I just love people and who they are authentically. And um, I find that I, I kind of drift towards people that I just naturally enjoy being around and I just really enjoy their company, so. Yeah, so it's not the gender itself and you're not gonna look at somebody and go, hey, look at that guy over there or hey, look at that woman there. You're like, that person has fantastic spirit and I'm attracted to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I I realized I was pansexual um, quite a, quite a few years ago, but there was it was and again I there was never really a label to put 
my experience too. Um, but yeah, I, I can honestly just say that if I find somebody beautiful, it's truly just because of who they are and because they, they're just their, their authentic self. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It, and I'm, but I'm glad that people are talking about this and, and have it be more open because again, growing up these terms or these ways, it was, well, you're going to grow up and you're going to get married to a nice girl and you're going to have your 2.5 kids and a pet. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, no, no. And I look back uh, at my childhood and I grew up in a small village, Botha, and my next door neighbor is, was a year younger than me. He is now an out male who is married with kids and, down the block on one of the only streets in our small village was another uh, young man who is now out as well. And gosh, I wish that we had the words to talk about it because in a small little village of 172 people, here's these three guys living on the same street who could have talked about it and who could have helped each other. And that's just being gay, that's not even putting in these other terms as well. And I'm thrilled that the kids these days, and I'm going to throw you in there because we do have a <laughs> difference, um, you know, but that is being talked about and the supports are there in, in a greater way. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned at 17, that's when you, you start breaking down these walls, you identified uh, as being non-binary, you struck through. So what was happening happening at this time in the years preceding becoming 17 years old? Was it sitting on a bed with a diary, putting hearts around little names of people and thinking about school dances? Or were there other things taking place? There was definitely... Um other things taking place for me. I grew up in foster care from age 11 to when I emancipated, which was when I was, uh, I was almost 17, but I was, I was still 16. Um, so I had moved out onto my own. Um, and, you know, growing up in foster care, it's a lot of isolation and a lot of time to think, um, Think by yourself, if that makes sense. It was a lot of trying to live not in isolation, but rather in solidarity. And, you know, when I had these thoughts that were labeled as different, bad, you know, and I, I would share them with the people that I was with, it wasn't necessarily taken into consideration that I was having very real feelings as a person. And so I had to learn how to do that a lot on my own. And so when I <clears throat> was growing up, it was a lot of thinking about who I am because I didn't really have an identity uh, growing up, moving from place to place. You, you tend to kind of adapt to where you are. And so when I had turned 17 and I had had all this time to think about myself, um, there wasn't really any, I guess you would say, any any room for mis, 
communication with myself. And I, when I heard the word non-binary, it's like, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's where I've been sitting at for, <laughs> for quite a while. And it's just like a bus rolled up and was like, Hey guys, what's going on? <laughs> let's get on the non-binary bus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when I, when I had um, moved to the city, because I've been living in the city probably for about, um, I guess I would say four years now, um, there was a lot more people um, in the community who were willing to um, talk to me and to tell me what was what was what was going on, you know. There had to have been a lot of fear, uh, especially when puberty had hit and you're dealing with all of that and the feelings and the emotions are springing forth there that especially with the situation that you were in with foster care, the worry of speaking up and saying your truth had to have been a huge fear. And because this is your living situation, it's a house over your head. It's the safety of that. Mm -hmm. So how did you handle that type of situation when you were growing up? Yeah. Um, when I, when I was really young, pre foster care and in foster care, I, I tended to do my own thing. Um, oftentimes you would see me writing in a journal or, um, outside. I, I really enjoyed nature as a kid and going through puberty and going through all those, um, phases of life. I was never really with one particular person who was a caregiver. It was moving from place to place. And so as a child, you you learn to adapt to to yourself rather than your surroundings, or at least I found. I know that that everybody's different. Um but yeah, it was it was just um taking myself away from the negative situations and going off and doing my own thing and going out to nature or like I said, writing in my journal and kind of just completely removing myself physically and emotionally from where I was at that point. Yeah. So I would imagine that on the quote unquote reports that were written that with that, you would have been considered the moody child, the one who was distant, hard to understand, um, misplaced perhaps um with your surroundings within that quote-unquote family unit am yeah. i correct with that you're spot on <laughs> so because of that you know you can only internalize things for too long so how did you strike back what did you do to say like come on i'm here like, pay attention you know i i need help what did you do to get noticed, whether that's positive or negative? Mm -hmm. Well, for me, I didn't start working on to my on myself until after the age of eighteen. So I had actually turned to substances um, to to fill that that void, right? So. By the time I was 16, I was I was in my heavy addiction and I I, I drew attention to myself, most definitely um, being an underaged um, 
queer unhoused youth doing substances, you know, you tend to get noticed by the ones that love you. Um, and they tend to see what you're going through, right? So I think as far as attention went, um, I still had a lot of those emotions repented and repressed, if that makes sense. And so mm -hmm. during my addiction, things kind of tended to take a little bit of a, of a backwards turn. Yeah. Which is a negative, but you've turned your negative past into a real strength for yourself. And I want to throw this in right now that since becoming an adult, you are now very accomplished with being a, a strong community support worker. And so when you turned 18, being unhoused, how many years were you unhoused, actually? Um, I was unhoused and displaced for a lot of my childhood, um, as well as in foster care. I would I would still have, they call them kinship homes, where it's, it's not necessarily foster care, but I was still couch surfing um, from place to place. And... There were times when I did have a house and I, I still wouldn't live there. I would I would take off for for weeks on end and I I would go do my own thing. <clears throat> and um, yeah, it, it, I I definitely was unhoused, but I I still managed to be resourceful in being me. And I was able to find temporary placements for myself growing up. Yeah, and, and for myself, listening to your story, and I imagine people who are listening at home, oh my God, how, how does this happen? Uh, I know the answer to this as well, but Kaylee, before the age of 18, how many different towns, villages, and cities did you live in? Ooh, that's a, that's a big number. Um, I, I've probably moved over 30 to 40 times i it's it's a quite a bit not quite a big number i've been to probably about 14 different schools in person and probably about 15 if, if you include like the virtual the virtual classes that you would call because i i tended to like to stay in bed a lot mm. it boggles the mind kaylee it just boggles the mind yet Again, you've turned this unfortunate background, you know, um, into a strength of learning. So when did you find that your life was going to become better, where that switch was made? You mentioned at the age of 17, uh, coming out or telling the world that you're non-binary. Was that the switch that caused the end to addiction that caused the end to being unhoused or was that something else what was the catalyst for you that made this switch yeah um i i think that um the switch came from um an event that had happened and when i had seen where my life was going and I, you know, I had these dreams that I, of who I wanted to be and who I wanted to truly become. And I had, I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired, to be honest. I, I packed my bags one night and I, I never went back. I moved to um, 
I, I got put back into institutions and group homes and I went to treatment and, you know, that, that definitely helped, but it was really, I, I didn't want to live in a life of pain from my addiction. And I, I knew that there was, that there was better out there and I wasn't going to sit there knowing that I never tried to get it. Hmm. So you're, you, you're, you've been emancipated at the age of 16, 17, non-binary, 18, you are considered legal, I guess, to the eyes of many. Mm -hmm. So when did becoming a community support worker become part of your active life? Honestly, it's, it's always been there. Um, I going through addiction and even just seeing somebody outside who's, who's, who's just in need. Um, they look like they're dehydrated. I'm like, you know what? I've been there, man. I'm going to go get you some water. And just having those conversations with, with the people that, um, that are struggling with addiction and who are unhoused uh, is like when I, when I had gotten clean and I, I started working on myself. There was always still that, that mentality of this is where I came from. Um, and this is, this is similar circumstances that I, I might not necessarily be going through right now, but I have been through and being that person that was never there for me when I needed it the most. And so becoming a community support worker and actually getting educated and doing the work came later, but that same sense of empathy and understanding was always there. So I've always um, been empathetic, but I really got involved in, I would say probably about 2018 to 19. Um, there was the South side encampments that were put up mm -hmm. and I had went and I had just offered my ear and I had brought a bunch of clothing for the people that were staying in the camps. And I, I really sat down and listened to their stories. And I was like, I can't just live every day, not knowing um, what it's like to genuinely be there with, with the people who need it. And so I started my, my process in educating myself. So let's go back to that time, the Southside encampments. What was the cause of this particular encampment? What was taking place in the world that day that led towards this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That encampment specifically had went up into protest for um, community resources, is that the government had started to, and still are cutting the, the resources that people rely on on their everyday life. So people had went into a very public space and they had set up an encampment and um, when I had went, I, I had listened and it was mostly people wanted to get housed. They wanted access to mental health supports. They wanted access to um, addiction supports, harm reduction, all, all the things that, that a person should have. Now, 2018, if we're talking provincially, that's not a conservative government, that's not UCP, that's NDP. And so you would 
think that NDP being left on the left wing would be huge champions when it comes to everything that you described. And yet this was taking place still. So what has, what has been the conversation with governments, uh, different governments over the past number of years? Has it been easy to get the ear of people or is it banging your head against the wall? Um, with the NDP government, I, I personally, when they were, when they were still in, elected, I wasn't much involved in the business or political aspect of things. Hmm. Um, I still hadn't really educated myself, so I can't really speak too much on what they were doing because my, my role to play was more just to be a peer support worker. But today I have experienced firsthand what it is like to be a frontline worker and have a conservative government in in power and it's lay it's, it on <laughs> us lay it on us and remember you can swear on this podcast if need be oh beautiful yeah it's quite frustrating it's lonely being a community support worker and having a government that continuously and continuously and continuously um, cuts the budget for for mental health and addiction and shelters. Um, it's it's almost like giving somebody the facts and be like, hey, you know, I I heard what you said. I, I think that there's some pointers that need to be that need to be adjusted. Um, I have my experience and I have the experience of the people that I've worked with and what I have seen happen in the inner city. And I want to give you this information so that you can do good. And they take it and they look at it and they're like, Oh, I'm just going to kind of like take out like this big chunk here. And I'm going to, I'm also going to take that piece out as well. And I'll just leave you some crumbs to work with. It's, it's not, it's not easy at all. And it's, it's quite, it's quite frustrating. Yeah, well, we're going to get into this even closer because uh, the first time I met you, uh, you had come down to Pride Corner on White and uh, people are dancing and celebrating and actively protesting against the street preachers. But you had to leave us that night because you were going to work in the area um, mm -hmm. with a shelter that you were working with at the time. Uh, first, can you just tell us a little bit more about the work that you were doing at that time when I first met you a couple of months ago? Yeah, absolutely. I will leave the organization's name out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, just because I'm no longer with that particular organization, but what I was doing was I was working in a men's shelter doing, um, I had a team lead role for the overnight shift. Um, so really what my job entailed was more high barrier, which means um, it was a referral based process to get in. So you would have to get referred from a police officer, another shelter, a social worker, a mental health team. And it was a space where you had access to advocacy, you had access to a 24 hour come and go uh, shelter setting. So it wasn't an emergency drop-in, which means you can just um, sign your name up and you can come and leave whenever you want. Um, it 
once you had your name there, that was your space. And we had cubicles um, for the community to sleep in. And it was kind of a designated space for people to stay while they were working on their process of either their physical health, mental health, um, get, getting house, getting ID, um, addiction, all, all the things really. And it was just really a space where people could concentrate on their goals. Hmm. Now I'm going to ask this question just because it's a question asked here. Um, I know the answer to this, but you are an attractive uh, female presenting uh, spirit working at a men's shelter. What is that experience like when it comes to that specific role? Mm -hmm. uh, what is it just fluid or are there challenges in entering a male dominated area and providing support? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it definitely has its challenges, but I'm a big believer in boundaries and setting healthy boundaries. Um, and when incidents come up and I feel as if my boundaries are crossed, or let's say I've never set a boundary, I simply just sit down with that person. I'm like, hey, you know, I this is what happened. This is how I feel. And I think that we need to have some, some planning on what we're going to do next so that we can prevent it from happening again. And really just actually sitting down with people and just having those conversations. It's also a great experience for other people because not everybody um, necessarily lives a life of healthy boundaries. And a lot of people struggle with setting boundaries. <clears throat> so being... Um, a female presenting person um, in a male dominated shelter. It was a little bit difficult at first, but I, I earned the title of the boss. <laughs> this, uh, whenever I came in, the, the gentleman would sit there and they'd be like, Oh, the boss is here. Everybody behave. And you know, it would, it would be, um, I thought it was, was um, code for dragon lady. I then learned that it's actually uh, a symbol of respect. Yeah. And after I had kind of built that repertoire and I had had those experiences with people, they had had a, not everybody, you know, everybody's different. You get along with some people, you don't get along with others, but the people that I had worked with and I had built healthy relationships with, um, in the end, they, they really found me as a person to, to respect and I, I had the same respect for them as they had for me. Yeah, definitely a term of endearment. Always and always and always. Um, the government doesn't have respect for our community services. And so from what you are able to say with what happened next, with the shelter, um, things came to I don't know what the word would be for that, but the government fucked up. Yeah, basically. Um, so unfortunately that shelter is now, it's not open in the same aspect, but it's an emergency drop-in space for overnight. 
but they had closed um, in total three shelters. Um, two were bridged to housing, which is like I was saying before, it was a referral based um, space and the, the others were emergency drop-ins. And I know that as well as for inner city, um, there has been mass budget cuts as well. Um, <clears throat> so with shelter work as well, I, I tend to remind myself that it's contracted work. So basically what that means is that um, an organization that is either provincially or federally funded will get a contract to stay in a space for a certain amount of time. And when that contract is up, then they'll move to another location where it's needed. And this has happened for several, several years in the, the, the city of Edmonton, but it was only when we heard that we aren't getting that next bit of funding that it really brought things into perspective of that sly budget cut, you know, that, that unspoken budget cut that was never put out to the public, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, three shelters being closed in essence. And here we are doing this recording at the very beginning of October, 2021. We live in Edmonton as beautiful as the summer and the fall can be winter is coming. And where do people go from there, from the shelter to the streets to, to, I don't know, what are some of those resources that you would recommend to people um, in this situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that unfortunately a lot of people were forced back into inner city and um, encampments and river valleys. Um, some did get housed, but um, I am a big believer in advocacy and how an advocate can help somebody who is struggling with being unhoused. Um, so we have a couple organizations in the city of Edmonton. One is the Bissell, uh, the Bissell Center. So they offer a wide range of, um, of things such as advocacy, um, uh, bridge to housing, permanent housing, um, employment, mental health, um, some really important things. Uh, like I said before, though, is that if somebody is interested in getting an advocate, what an advocate is, is somebody to sit down with you and to go through all these different processes that you have to go to to advocate for your behalf. Um, so let's say if you would like to get housing or if you would like to get employment or you would like to seek mental health um, therapy, it's, it's really important. Um, unfortunately, we have a lot of hoops that we have to jump through. And an advocate kind of makes those hoops a lot easier to jump through. Um, yeah. It's still very challenging. Nothing happens overnight. But um, Bissell Center is definitely one of the, the better organizations. Um, I would like to say that I am not um, speaking on behalf of the Bissell Center. I am speaking on behalf of um, a community member who knows that it's available and um, a community support worker who has referred people to Bissell Center um, and, and hearing that positive feedback. So. Hmm. So you're in the White Avenue area of Edmonton often, and White Avenue is perhaps one of, if not the 
busiest streets in Edmonton, especially at night, uh, with the shelters in the area, but the bars, the nightlife, the restaurants itself. And I would imagine there has been some times that you've been out in that area since uh, the shelter has changed that mm -hmm. you were at. Have you come across people that you used to work with? And if so, can you share with us what's happening for them at the moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I personally have a very strict uh, boundary with having relationships with clients outside of an organization, but I unfortunately have seen several people, um, several different people um, that I have known to be unhoused and backed at where they were, where they had started. Um, the unfortunate thing is, is that there's no resources um, down White Ave currently. Um, there is the overnight shelter uh, with the mustard seed, which is at the Knox uh, Church, and they offer an overnight space for men and women um, and anybody that needs an overnight space to stay. Um, but as far as advocacy, housing supports, harm reduction, um, clothing, food, water, all these things go is that you are resorted to going through the downtown location. Mm. Um, so that leaves a lot of people struggling down White Ave. Yeah, because um, physically within Edmonton, White Avenue is on the other side of the river. And it is a barrier, even for housed folks. You have the north side and the south side, and mm -hmm. there are people who do not cross the river, even if they have a driver's license, a car, access to transportation. It's mm -hmm. sometimes very cut and dry with people. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the 80s, Alan Moore uh, came out with the comic book, The Watchman, and they had Who Watches the Watchman? And I only say that not because the story relates to you, but they said, who watches the Watchmen? And so my question for you is, who supports the community supporter? That mm -hmm. is you. So who supports you in this mm -hmm. type of situation? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, with our government right now, it's, there's not, there's not a lot of supports. And I personally uh, make sure to do my self-care. Mm -hmm. And I, I hold myself attentive to caring for my mental health. So um, even I have accessed um, access 24 seven, um, which is another really great resource in the city of Edmonton. Um, as somebody who struggles with mental health and addiction and being a community support worker, it's so much more important for me to make sure that I, I don't relapse. I don't have, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have those episodes that I can't handle, um, making sure that I don't get to the point of breaking. So going to places like Access 24-7 and finding a therapist and doing that that type of work is is really important to, to me. I wish that there was more uh, resources for frontline workers regarding mental health. Um, I think that that, was, that would definitely be something that the government could improve on, though. 
there's a lot that they can improve on um the laundry list you know it's it's there for sure uh you mentioned access 24 7 we have that here on the screen uh we also have um a banner to come up here on the screen as well that i hope that you're able to talk a little bit about and that is access open minds uh and that's available for uh individuals between the ages of 16 to 25. Uh, so access open minds what is that mm -hmm. and before i start i would like to say and again i'm not anyway affiliated with access 24 7 or access open minds i am just speaking from my own experience um but access open minds is an amazing organization I personally have accessed them as well, um, considering the name. <laughs> but they hold a variety of different uh, resources for people from age 16 to 25, such as crisis intervention. Um, they can get you connected with addiction supports, mental health supports, and they can get you connected with a, a psychiatrist, um, all the all the good things that are really important to keep yourself healthy. Hmm. When I got to talk to you a little bit more, you came to uh, help me greatly one evening on Pride Corner on White. Uh, not to tell too much of the story, and I apologize to our listeners who want all the information, but we had two individuals who uh, were getting too close to uh, an underaged unhoused youth who uh come to who come, comes to the area uh to take part uh with the community uh and there was a concern and i was asked to um have the people leave uh you were my support team to de-escalate the situation and the people eventually left, but it could have been so much better, uh, you know, and I learned from that. Uh, so just putting on your community support service hat, if we come across a situation in our lives, small town Alberta, cities, wherever we are in Canada and the world, and we come across something and we know that we need to step in to deal with the situation. We're on the streets. Are there tips that you can give us on how to de-escalate a situation and have it be a win-win whenever possible? Mm -hmm. um, there definitely are several different ways, specifically going to de-escalation workshops, for example. There are some really great people who have um, educational videos, but from my experience is I always suggest if you are not trained in de-escalation um, or have that experience is don't put yourself in danger. Um, but if you are put into that situation, it's just to stay calm. Um, in, in my experience is that when people are escalated, they are angry. Um, anger is a secondary emotion to fear. 
Um, people who are angry are either humiliated, um, hurt in some way. And by you getting angry in a situation that, that could be potentially dangerous, um, isn't only triggering for you, but it's also triggering for that person as well. Mm. And so when, for example, when I, I'll talk about that incident, how we had dealt with it was you remove that person from the space. You remove them from causing any physical harm to others. And you make sure that when you remove them from the space is that you, you introduce yourself and you, you talk to them basically just like, like you would be talking to anybody. Cause what I, I like to remember is that these are still people and they, they also have trauma just like I do. And being like, Hey, this is, this is what's going on. Uh, unfortunately, like I can't get into specifics at this time. Um, I can have a conversation with you and kind of talk to you about what's going on, but I'm going to have to ask you to leave the space and just staying calm, uh, making sure that your, your body is not too close to theirs is a really important thing. Even if somebody, you know, very well as escalated is that you never really know how people react. Um, depending on the situation. So for example, is making that conscious effort to keep yourself from not being triggered um, is a really big one for me. Yeah, and Which is difficult because you're in a situation and you recognize that, oh, this could be volatile. Mm -hmm. uh, there's people who are watching. Uh, there's uh, people who are wanting you to deal with the situation right away. The pressure's on you. So, yeah, it's no wonder that a person wants to raise a voice and just say, you know, I've told you once, I've told you twice. This is now the fifth time I have to tell you. Now mm -hmm. get the beep out of here. You know, that's yeah. that's where a person wants to go to. But then that taking the breath and what i learned that evening was we had mo removed um the people from the situation a little bit but we were still in the area and that i should have done a better job in really removing the person having the conversation as we were more mobile walking away from everything uh to so to eliminate the danger when it comes to that those mm -hmm. are things that i would on the outside looking in go, yeah, that's what a person needs to do. But when you're in the situation, it's tough. It is, it's absolutely. Tough. And the other thing too, and, and kind of why I didn't want to tell the story too much is because in the story, the one individual did do something that was humorous in a way that caused everybody to kind of go, Keska fuck, what the, what's going on? But it was humorous yeah. in a way, but at the same time, as you mentioned, that person has dealt with trauma in their lives and has dealt with things that we don't know of. And so, yes, as you said, being confronted triggered and caused the person to react in the way they did. So humorous in the way, but extremely sad. And, I, and I'm still processing everything because mm -hmm. I'm glad to have been there to have removed the people from the situation Yet at the same time, there's no follow-up because the people needed help themselves. And 
unfortunately that was not the time to be able to lend the ear at least the way i was feeling that night so there's a lot to learn when it comes to helping and in, in stepping in and um and knowledge is good knowledge is great but i i wanted to mention this because you were a huge support that night you know and just being that steady hand and as that people are listening to us and all that you're we're listening to your voice you're steady you're calm you know there's a few <laughs> times where we get that inflection up and down there but you're calm you're steady at that time so going back to yourself have you always had that steadiness or is that something that you learned because that was more positive way or that was a way that was safe for you mm -hmm. honestly um i i was never calm before i it's <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know what happened in between me um getting clean and now but i I'm a very mindful person. I I honestly am just like, meh. It's how it's how it goes, you know. Um, things happen, uh, people happen, incidents this happen. But especially in de-escalation, I I worked at. Um, I've been in some pretty pretty scary situations in in my personal life, um, and then working with the community is that things do get escalated very fast, um, very fast uh, indeed. And so just like being very mindful of my own emotions and being like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get triggered myself. Maybe I should step away and let somebody else handle the situation. Mm -hmm. But I, I like to think of myself as like a cool mist in the wind almost <laughs> i know that's <laughs> i like it yeah yeah just kind of just i'm just here you know i'm here if you need me but yeah usually with the advertisements i have the person's name and then there's a, a there's a uh heading underneath it that kind of captures it all and that i'm going to go the cool mist in the wind underneath mm -hmm. yours you have that mysterious part we solved our conversation afterwards because you solved that issue for me in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. You know, Kaylee, as we're going through this, you know, it's you've used your um, childhood trauma, your childhood reality, your teenage trauma, your teenage uh, reality, and you've done a lot of good. You've you've done that for yourself, but you've done that for the community and and. It, a lot with our unhoused LGBTQ plus IA community as well. Like you're heavily involved in everything. Uh, our YouTube uh, watchers will be able to see you and judge your age based on the way you present. But you know, for our audio listeners, Kaylee is quite young. Uh, relatively so I will never ask someone their age uh, in which you know but the Kaylee of the future can there be a Kaylee who continues to do this five years from now ten years from now 20 years from now is there a space for Kaylee to do that both personally and professionally I would like to think so I would like to hope so. 
I, 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 yes, I am relatively young. Um, I am 89 years old to be exact. <laughs> For the audio listeners, that's not true. It's <laughs> definitely not true. Um, I personally, in my next steps of my career as being, being a community support worker, is to actually go into social work and to get um, my degree in 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 social work in Edmonton here. Hmm. It's a an incredibly difficult job to do, um, but there are these spirits that burn bright and out there in the world who can do it. And oh, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for people like yourself that uh, have made this their mission in life to uh, undo the effects of um, addiction and being unhoused on our population. It's uh, it, the world is better knowing that there are people like you out there. I sure hope that it's not going to be this government, uh, but the next government understands that our community support workers need the support themselves mm -hmm. um, and making sure that those steps are in place. Yeah. With when it comes to the politics, what are one or two things that you need, that you demand to have happened right now that's just not taking place? Honestly, um, the the funding for mental health, as well as um, specifically people who are experienced in social work make those decisions to where to direct the funding. Mm -hmm. Um, just because there are so many different perspectives. There's harm reduction, person first, uh, bridge to housing. Uh, there's people who work in encampments. There's people who work in buildings. But um, it's really like listening to the dire need at the moment. Like, for example, we have an opioid uh, epidemic happening right now. And our government has been rather silent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Ashley and Jocelyn um, from a an inner city uh, organization were on Tales of the LGBTQ Plus two episode, episodes ago and to talk about the opi opioid uh, epidemic that's taking place and uh, how serious the issue is. Um, and they were saying that the one of the problems with the borders being closed is the pure heroin, pure drugs are not coming over the border. And then I'm like, but why is that good? Well, it's because people here are mixing, creating the drugs. They're putting, they're spiking it with greater doses of fentanyl and other things. So the op opioid crisis has become so much more because of the COVID uh, pandemic taking place, borders being closed, and mm -hmm. definitely has opened up my mind from what I understood from before. Mm -hmm. And so I know I'm in a period of listening and trying to understand for our listeners who are listening and they know a loved one who has gone through this or uh, experiencing it at the moment and struggling with what to do. What do you recommend to our listeners on how they can be a support uh, mm -hmm. to our unhoused or uh, people who are experiencing addiction? 
Mm -hmm. I find that the stigma is extremely challenging to break, but I highly encourage people to, to challenge their beliefs. Um, when people think of somebody who's unhoused, what do you picture? Um, do you picture the person sitting next to you or do you picture the person who is currently living out of a tent, um, struggling with addiction? <clears throat> um, and really bringing yourself to the awareness of what you've been accustomed to believe. Yeah. Because I can guarantee that what you think is happening is not even a sliver of what's happening in, in our community right now. Yeah, it's truth. It's truth. I had read newspaper reports. I had listened to stories before, but um, before this past year where I've become more of an advocate and got myself out there, I didn't know. And so when um, people say, oh, the unhoused youth or unhoused people who come to Pride Corner on White, it's shocking, just absolutely shocking because I thought I had a good eye with picking things out, but no clue, no clue whatsoever. And, and so one does struggle with the stereotypes and the stigmas and what do I say in those situations? So I, and, and to follow up with what you're saying, I think it was great with you saying, what does that look like? Who are the people? And it's a great question for ourselves. Um, as we wrap up our interview with each other, Kaylee, uh, you work very closely uh, and you've done advocacy work with Water Warriors YAG here in Edmonton. Um, Thursday nights being out and uh, feeding, uh, providing water, clothing for our unhoused youth as, as well as adults. Um, how has that experience helped you in your own journey? Mm -hmm. I am personally, uh, well, right now I'm, I'm taking a bit of time off. But what I what I do is I work um, on the harm reduction team. So what we do is we respond to drug poisonings, um, which were formerly referred to as overdoses. Um, I hand out safe consumption supplies and safe usage supplies like needles, um, uh, pipes, um, all all the things that somebody would need to safely inject as well as safely um, consume uh, substances. Um, and I also work closely with um, a few people who choose to, because we are a straight outreach organization. Um, what I do is I, if somebody is interested in getting housed or interested in employment options, which is totally fine if they're not, because that's not, that's one of the reasons why I'm there, but I, I mostly I'm just sit with people where they're at, right? But what I've experienced personally was the great loss, unfortunately. Um, a part of working in harm reduction is that pe a lot of people pass away. Um, and a lot of people um, are actively using and, you know, you don't know if you're going to see that person the next day. Um, and really just being grateful to be with the people that you work with in the moment and um, just being there to get to know people. Um, I unfortunately lost uh, 
somebody I had been working with uh, for harm reduction, uh, a community member um, passed away um, within the recent weeks. And that was one of the big lessons that I had learned um, being a community support worker and working in harm reduction is that, you know, it's, it's part of the process, unfortunately. Um, my learning process as a harm reduction um, worker and as well as a community support worker is that you really just have to appreciate for people for where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, I hate using the devil's advocate saying, because I'm at that point right now, well, the devil doesn't need an advocate. Um, but, you know, just going back briefly to something that you said with, um, with things that you provided out there. And I just want people to be aware, um, you know, the reasons why, but somebody listening to this podcast may be like, why is Kaylee out there handing out needles and pipes for people? Doesn't that just feed the addiction? Mm -hmm. What do you yeah. say to that? Yeah, honestly, that is a lot of people's perspectives, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So let's shatter them because they need to be shattered. Yeah, absolutely. So harm reduction reduces harm. Um, giving people um, safe usage supplies um, doesn't eliminate, eliminate, but it it reduces the risk of HIV, um, other other uh, known prone diseases to our human body. Um, it also gives people a sense of I. I deserve this and I deserve to, to get these resources that I do need. Um, and just getting people to a space where if they do have a drug poisoning, um, they won't die. Yeah. Yeah. Simple They're, as that. <laughs> yeah. As simple as that. Yeah. It's making sure that yes, this is going to happen no matter what until the addiction can be overcome. So, it's safety and making sure that we can deal with the overdoses. And sorry, and what's the words that we're using now other than overdoses? Um, I heard a friend referring it to referring to it as drug poisonings. Okay. Um, I I'm still trying to correct myself because mm -hmm. it's the term has been overdose for, for quite some time, but um I find that once a word's been around for long enough, it, it tends to gather a meaning which creates stigma, like uh, being homeless. So yeah. I guess it's I guess it's drug poisoning now. Okay. Yeah. And just like how other than saying homeless, we're saying unhoused. Yeah. Uh, and so it's relearning vocabulary as we go along. And we know this has been part of the 2S LGBTQIA community. That Q, the word queer, I've hated that word for years years because it was always used against me now we're trying to reclaim that word and i understand it but change is hard and so when it comes to terms it's it's using and it's understanding that there are reasons why because of the stigma uh, mm -hmm. that goes with that hey kaylee you know there's so much that uh, I've learned just from our conversation here today and, and, you know, and we're going to continue having these stories as the years go by, because now you're stuck with me and all yeah. that good stuff. And, uh, you know, but 
I'm really interested to hear wh what you would say about yourself at something something years old at the moment. What would you say to that 16-year-old self who hadn't yet found out the word non-binary in the midst of addiction, being unhoused? If you had a chance to have that conversation and you were able to sit and listen and provide space for that younger self, what would you say in return? Keep fighting. Um, keep fighting for your right to be respected as a person um, because you're not only worth it, but you deserve it. And you, you, you are such an amazing person and you don't even know it yet. Um, uh, sp specifically with being um, uh, a youth with parents who are addicts, you might be struggling with addiction and mental health, is that we have to learn to become that support system for ourselves. because at the end of the day, we don't have anybody. And you're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Lean into being that cool mist in the wind because oh. it's going to take you everywhere. Yeah. And that I know for sure is going to happen. Kaylee, mm -hmm. my dear, you are fantastic. You're dealing with uh, a flooded basement at the moment. Oh, yes. There's so <laughs> many jokes I could say with you flooding your basement, but I won't do that at the moment because everything's <laughs> on the up and up here on Tales of the LGBTQ+. Uh, but I just want, you know, thank you uh, just for sharing part of your story. And uh, it's a story that you're going to continue to write. And I know that you'll be back uh, here to tell more of your story as well. So uh, mm -hmm. as I, as always happens, yeah, once again, I become smitten. So damn you podcast world and talking to people <laughs> because I used to not like people and I just kept to myself with my husband and a small group of fantastic friends and now there's other people and I kind of like them too. Oh. Absolutely. I know I know the exact same feeling. I, I feel like I'm looking into a mirror again. Welcome to uh, adulthood, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, oh. Kaylee, uh, on behalf of our all, all of our listeners who will be listening to this, uh, today, tomorrow, and in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you asking all the all the needed questions and important things. And um, thank you for everybody for listening to, to my story, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. The story that will be continued to be written. Mm -hmm. Hey, and so on behalf of Kaylee, my name's Douglas Parsons. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Tales of the LGBTQ+. If this is your first time here, welcome. There are many great stories to be heard. Everyone has a story to share. So let's listen and understand. Do take a look at our YouTube channel as well as our audio that's found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and other sites. Definitely reach out to me via social media and I can direct you towards great people. I ensure that I'll leave links for the Bissell Center, Access Open Minds, and Access 24-7 uh, here in the show notes uh, for this YouTube channel, as well as on audio as well. So once again, my name is Douglas Parsons. 
You've been listening to Kaylee here on Tales of the LGBTQ+, reminding you all to be good and always text when you get home. Until next next time, everybody.